sponsored by Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about global health and the spread of monkeypox. Also going to be talking about the Pope and his recent apologies to indigenous people. And it's Friday, which means we're having another edition of our weekly segment, The Red Spin Report. We discuss sports, politics, and struggle. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind. Well, economics and anti-communism have always been inextricably tied to the naked brutality of this capitalist system and to the wanton brutality this government will use to crush any dissent against it by its citizens demanding justice and relief. The current converging crises just might drive people into the streets again very soon. At least we hope they will. And when that happens, be prepared for the government to respond with brute military-like force, just like they did on July 28, 1932, when the U.S. government mobilized the regular army against World War I veterans who had amassed in protest against the Hoover administration across from the Capitol building to demand that they be paid the wartime bonuses that were promised to them by Congress eight years earlier. In 1924, Congress voted for adjusted compensation for World War I vets, $1.25 for each day they served overseas, $1 for each day they served in the states. And veterans who were owed $50 or less were paid immediately, but everyone else was given a certificate that would collect 4% interest with an additional 25% tacked on upon payment. However, there was a catch. The certificate was not redeemable until 1945. However, in the midst of the Great Depression, millions of World War II veterans suffered after serving their country, and many decided to demand payment of the future worth of their bonus certificates immediately. Tens of thousands of unemployed and near-destitute World War I vets formed a bonus expeditionary force, known forever as the Bonus Army, and marched on Washington to demand their pay from President Herbert Hoover and Congress. Although the military was segregated during wartime, the veterans in the Bonus Army refused to bring Jim Crow into their fight, and white and black vets encamped in this struggle together. One of the moments in the history of people's struggle where black and white people figured out that our struggle really is a shared one. The House passed a veterans relief bill on June 15, 1932, but it was defeated in the Senate, which only drew even more veterans to the protest. But you know what the government and the media did then? They did what they do today. They claimed the veterans were communists who were infiltrated by red agitators. It's an old trope that the U.S. government and its scribes in the media always use to discredit people's protests. The fact that they used it against legitimate Army veterans should help you feel less insulted when they will use it against you. It's not personal. It's just their typical anti-communist playbook that red-blooded American patriots fall for every time. 
President Hoover called in the regular army, commanded by Army Chief of Staff Douglas MacArthur, who said that the veterans were agitators trying to overthrow the government. That's right. America's hero, MacArthur, dismissed his own fellow servicemen as traitors because they demanded to be paid what they were due so they wouldn't starve to death during the Depression. Also, Major George S. Patton was assisted by a young Dwight D. Eisenhower, who later became president and ironically warned us about the growth of the military-industrial complex. And the three of them led the unit that violently evicted the Bonus Army with four troops of cavalry, four companies of infantry, a machine gun squadron, and six tanks. The Army threw tear gas at the veterans trying to gather their belongings and their families and retreat in an orderly fashion. They set fire to their tents as they pursued them with bayonets fixed to their rifles. And later that night, tanks bulldozed the encampment and the whole thing was set afire. And they did all this because Patton told his troops, quote, if you must fire, do a good job. A few casualties become martyrs, a large number, an object lesson. When a mob starts to move, keep it on the run. Use a bayonet to encourage its retreat. If they're running, a few good wounds in the buttocks will encourage them. If they resist, they must be killed. So that's what they did. And to add insult and violence to injury, the next president, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, not only refused to pay the bonuses, but he reappointed MacArthur as the Army's chief of staff. But America loves its troops, right? Are you shocked that the government of the United States could possibly stoop so low as to treat its own veterans like enemy combatants? Are you surprised that U.S. officials would smear its own veterans with the communist label to justify unleashing the active duty army and its violence on them? Don't be. The U.S. has always and will continue to use anti-communism as a tactic in its propaganda wars against anyone that it wants to wage actual war against. And you know I'm talking about Ukraine now, right? Where the country that has legitimized neo-Nazis is propped up as bravely defending democracy against the evil empire Russia that Putin is trying to reestablish the evil communist empire of the USSR in by, I don't know, eating Ukrainian babies, I guess. It's in this context that a country that has carried out an eight-year civil war against ethnic Russians in the Donbass region has used Ukrainian civilians and civilian buildings as cover for their own military operations, then had Western media blame Russia for bombing those civilian targets in Ukraine, is now claiming that Russia is to blame for the missile strike that killed 40 Ukrainian prisoners of war in the region of Donetsk. Do I know for sure that Russia isn't responsible? Nope, I'm not. I don't know for sure. And if they did, of course, shame on them and responsibility needs to be taken. But Ukraine has repeatedly committed attacks on civilians in the very region this latest attack occurred in, including plenty of war crimes. And the Western media has been silent about 
all of them. So in my mind, it is not inconceivable that Ukraine has also committed this heinous act and is using it to feed the voracious imperialist Western media the red meat that it wants to do what it has been doing and demonize Russia in the press, all in an effort to try to maintain public support for this horrific proxy war in which the U.S., the EU, NATO, and the government in Ukraine are sacrificing countless Ukrainian people, including members of the military, so Volodymyr Zelensky and Ukraine can be a made member of the imperialist armed mafia, NATO. The people in power continue to refuse to meet our needs as they continue to defend and pour our money into their proxy war in Ukraine. As they scream Russophobia on the 24-7 news cycle, we deal daily with the lingering ravages of COVID, the spread of monkeypox now, the recession, climate change, unaffordable housing, crushing student loan debt, women's bodily autonomy and privacy rights revoked, the rising threats to gay and trans rights. At some point, the anti-communist propaganda will stop working on enough of us. And that's when they'll turn the U.S. war machine on us. Again, if you stay ready, you'll be ready, people. Follow Luke Mon Nation on Patreon.com slash Luke Mon Nation for lots of great content. And those are today's talking points. And you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. By Any Means Necessary. And today we're talking about the state of global health in the midst of the spread of monkeypox. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Gargaya Telekapali, a public health professional with People's Health Movement. Gargaya, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And uh, Gargaya, the World Health Organization recently declared that monkeypox is a global health emergency. And uh, here in the United States, uh, reportedly, there's set to be a distribution of 800,000 doses of a monkeypox vaccine. And we're here, of course, uh, in D.C., which actually is leading the nation, reportedly, in monkeypox cases per capita. And I feel like already uh, I'm seeing some of the same mistakes uh, repeated that we saw in the early days of the coronavirus pandemic, particularly in the case of just sort of public education around monkeypox, what it is, how it spreads and how people can uh, uh, protect themselves. And although there are, you know, articles and things written about it, I feel like there just hasn't been that kind of aggressive push from uh, the government that I think is so necessary in a moment like this. But before we even get into the sort of public education aspect of things, Gargaya, I was actually hoping you could just sort of break down and explain just what monkeypox is and uh, what is the sort of character of it and its spread. And what are just the basic things we should know about this condition? Sure. Uh, thanks. I, I think, you know, uh, I'll my uh, talk will be a bit more global in its sense because I'm from India. Maybe I might not answer some of the in-depth issues of United States as much. Uh, so first, I'll just go through what this monkeypox is and if it's actually just come up in the year 2022. So actually, the monkeypox virus uh, has been you know, uh, existing from many, many years, like Ebola and everything, many other diseases. 
the monkeypox virus has been uh, existing from quite some time and it is not just existing but it has been endemic that means that it is quite common in the western parts of africa and there are two types of monkeypox virus uh, that you get one is the west african lineage and the other is the uh, congo lineage so the one that you see right now that is spread across the world world is the west african lineage uh, virus and monkeypox virus is actually a zoonotic virus when we mean zoonotic that means they spread from animals to humans so you must have heard something like this for many other diseases you know you are from us anthrax and foot and mouth disease and so on so uh, sorry so anyway so basically you have seen many other diseases like this which come from animals to humans and so on so these come when you know due to the secretions of these animals uh, due to uh, bites or scratches or you know ha while handling the meat and so on so there is a very uh, confusing thing that this comes from monkeys so that's not exactly the story the story is that it was first found in monkeys and that's why they been calling it monkeypox it's quite prevalent in squirrels rats and so on in the west african region so this uh, disease is uh, to an extent apart from the lesions or the rashes that you see most of its symptoms are you know many people don't even have symptoms and those who have symptoms have something like a flu like symptoms alone so you know you might be feeling fever you might be feeling a bit of muscle pains and so on and you have something known as the swollen glands which is like your swollen lymph nodes behind your ears in your neck and so on so these are the kind of things that you see and the ones that you are seeing predominantly the lesions the monkeypox rash that you are seeing uh, starts on the face uh, and then it spreads all over so these are the kind of ones and you know how many people get monkeypox how, how many of those people who get monkeypox eventually actually die is something 1% or less so it's not a disease where you get it and you know there's a lot of uh, the, you know the pictures and images are quite scary so people are also uh, you know getting uh, very scared of all this but it's also like those who do get do not uh, actually you know the mortality is less they don't die immediately or any such thing so that's about this and uh, uh, yeah if you if you want to ask something else. Yeah, definitely. And I really appreciate you breaking that down because, I mean, I feel like when we when there isn't sort of a clear basic understanding of what a condition is, then that leaves a lot of room for misinformation and conspiratorial thinking, which only exacerbates the problem. And speaking of education, Gargay, I was curious your thoughts on how the World Health Organization is handling the, the public uh, uh, education aspect uh, of the monkeypox at this point. so uh, any disease for example since we are we come from a political economy kind of understanding uh, you know the education about the disease is one small part of the response that a country has so it's not like you know uh, it's not just an issue of education alone but the necessary uh, response from the governments so one thing uh, let us be clear is whenever there is a health emergency uh, or even in a normal sense ideally in a political yeah, because is a political platform our understanding is that health is the responsibility of the state you know providing health care uh, 
and the richest country in the world which you are from actually thinks of it as a very different uh, from a very different understanding which we'll come to it later so the world health organization is the organization which coordinates with it is the un's specialized organization on health so everything that needs to be coordinated about health actually happens from the world health organization and luckily not from some philanthropic philanthropic capitalist or uh, private organization so we have this organization which supposed to coordinate a equitable response and you know an immediate response which is based on solidarity in an ideal situation however we usually don't see that and what you need to understand here is the who has declared this disease as uh, this outbreak as public health emergency of international concern and in the last few years the ones that you must have heard of or these public health emergencies the biggest one of course is covid but before that you would have heard of ebola zika and so on and so forth something that you need to really note is in the last 10 years there have been around 5 to 6 outbreaks of uh, you know huge outbreaks of diseases which have been labeled as public health emergencies of international concern almost 3 or 4 of them come from western uh, africa and this actually is not just a reflection of the health situation there but it's a reflection of the socio economic uh, conditions in west and central africa and africa in general uh, and you know how uh, the some of these countries do you know no more have a functioning health system uh, which really is able to uh, deal with uh, their health issues and somewhere down the line they come out so you know we are also to an extent suddenly realized that oh there is this disease in africa but this has been there from uh, many many years so you know it it's also the kind of mentality that you know it spreads out of africa and then you and it starts affecting the whites in europe and us and then we kind of go into uh, you know fire fighting or you know treating it with more importance than it was i mean this disease was there from 1970 so it's not completely suddenly new so there are these you know background connotations that we uh, kind of see yeah gargaya and you know another one of the background connotations that i think we are seeing emerge in the public response to monkeypox is the specter of homophobia because you know one of the ways not the only way but one of the ways the virus is transmitted is through uh uh men having sex with men so there is a rise in infections among gay men in some countries but there are infections that are uh being reported among people who are not gay men but that does not matter the fact that there are people who are infected in ways that have nothing to do with gay sex there is this stigma of homophobia that is attached to uh this virus and the way it is spread how do you see that uh, uh reflecting the way the uh outbreak is uh, or the spread of the virus is being responded to by governments around the world so this is actually a very pertinent question which i uh, was about to come to this thanks for raising it so you know it's quite a, a pity and it's so shameful that you know we are in the 21st century and uh, uh when an outbreak like this happens we actually go into i mean globally not just the right wing even in you know, a bit of the other mainstream uh, 
groups also go into this very uh, you know there is racism associated with it there is absolute homophobia like you are saying see let us agree that there is a uh, you know uh, a large population of those who have uh, got infection are uh, have are men having sex with men gay communities bisexuals and so on in an ideal situation you should not be worried you know uh, just because it's 90% of the case cases are coming from the community you should actually be going forth and you know in solidarity actually uh, uh, instead of stigmatizing it you sh- uh, one should the government should be uh, you know opening up more but unfortunately we don't stay uh, you don't live in a world where people are seen just as it is you know you have covid immediately you need to uh, blame it on the chinese you have this uh, uh, Yeah, monkeypox you need to immediately blame it on you know people from west and central africa you need to blame it on the uh, uh, gay men and you know others having men, men having sex with men so this is a very unfortunate thing and i don't actually see some of the countries really changing their ways of uh, dealing with the situation also we need to really as social groups and uh, Uh, movements and progressive political parties there is a need to actually uh, bring this to the notice of the governments that you know there is this inherent stigma that is happening and it's so difficult for someone in you know luckily uh, to an extent europe and us do have an existing uh, you know so- some amount of uh, groundwork or some amount of base wherein you have health services or the lgbtq community does have some health services that they know of but the situation is actually even worse when you come to you know some of the countries in africa and asia where uh, it's almost considered a sin to be in a homosexual relationship and so on and this actually makes it even worse in an ideal situation you should be uh, you know so you should actually encourage someone to come up not uh, make them feel guilty that they have some infection and immediately uh, provide the necessary healthcare and that's everything about being human but instead you are actually creating a situation of fear uh, among uh, those who might be infected or those who might have a doubt or so on so this is a unfortunate situation that we are in and uh, this is happening not just in the us but it's actually happening all across and uh, you know this also takes us to the next point for example even from a public health understanding you know you need to be ring vaccinating that means you know there is someone who has had sex or who has been staying with who who has monkey pox and who has been in contact with others in an ideal situation we should be saying okay who, who all did you meet in the last few days let's you know get them vaccinated luckily you know us has some number of vaccines uh, with them because of their strategic stockpiling uh because of which comes from a very uh bioterrorism and biosecurity understanding of smallpox which they are using right now uh because they have stockpiled the vaccine so us luckily is able to vaccinate some of their population and those at risk but that's not the case with many other countries in a country like india where i am we haven't even started the ring vaccinations properly and there are many countries who don't have the uh, medicines that need to be treated and so on so this goes from you know cutting across issues it's it it needs a lot of solidarity and a lot of you know broad 
broadness. But what we see is a very narrow understanding. Definitely. And on that note, uh, Gargay, I was hoping you could say more about um, the the barriers to uh, people accessing health care that uh, could, could also exacerbate the monkeypox issue, even as uh, different governments attempt to expand their vaccine capabilities. Sure. So the first thing is we there is an issue of science also that there are uh, only two vaccines available and there is only one uh, therapeutic, which is a medicine available, antiviral available to treat this presently. So one, we have a shortage of, uh, you know, the medical products that are needed. This also requires something known as PCR test, which means you need to have good grade of uh, laboratories and so on. But in real world, you know, this is an ideal situation where you should be having all these things. But the situation of public health services along the world, around the world is in shambles, actually, wherein due to years of uh, austerity and other, uh, because of all the kinds of neoliberal agenda, what we see is the public health services, which are need, which need to be given by the government are in shambles in most of the countries they are, they are either uh, you know at the bottom where they are just able to deal with outbreaks like this or they are actually non existent uh, itself so the first thing is you know people don't even know where to go so luckily to an extent countries because of who's declaration and the last two months have been stepping up some amount of services that you know if you have these XYZ symptoms, please come to our clinic or something like that. In an ideal situation, you know, we should, our surveillance should be very good because it's public health surveillance. So the surveillance should be good and we should be able to, uh, you know, trace everyone who actually came in the country with an infection, whoever they have uh, contacted and so on. So that's one side of it. But the other side is there is a huge death of these medical products and in particular the vaccine this vaccine actually was prepared for smallpox uh, which is of a similar family of monkeypox which also works for monkeypox so we need to actually be vaccinating people across the board not like mass vaccinations but vaccinations of those who might be at high risk those who might be uh, in contact with someone who has got and so on but, you know, this is not actually happening because uh, to an extent we have seen this with COVID also that vaccines and all these are no more public good, you know, medicines and vaccines, which actually should be public good and should be given to people uh, free of cost or country should be should not be, you know, worried about the stock that they have. Uh, what we see is actually countries actually worried that, oh, we don't have enough stock. So we might not be able to vaccinate our uh, population and so on. So that's the kind of uh, issue that we face. And in an ideal situation, if we were living in a world of solidarity and we are not thinking about profits before people's health, the companies who are manufacturing these vaccines would have given their cell lines or you know, given the knowledge uh, or trade, trade secrets or whatever we want to call them. They would have just passed on the knowledge and the necessary raw materials and everything and told that, you know, there seems to be a pandemic that we are going through. In solidarity, please do prepare your, you know, make yourself self-sufficient. But that's not a world where we stay. We stay in a world where in the middle of the pandemic also, pharma sector 
and the biotech biotech uh, sector that uh, looks at profits and that's a very sad uh, uh, situation that we are in and right now that's something that's most important that these companies share the uh, you know knowledge that they have openly and we have also seen this in covid that the inequity i mean science has limitations science can only produce a vaccine or a medicine or something but what you see is that these don't get to everyone and the same we see is repeating in uh, uh, monkeypox as well and you know that also you you'll see that the vaccination is happening in us and europe to an extent and the abysmal in the global south and unfortunately that's the kind of uh, situation that we are in Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Gargia, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about the Pope's recent apology to indigenous people. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by John Kane, a Mohawk activist and educator, producer and host of the Let's Talk Native podcast and co-host of Resistance Radio on WBAI Pacifica Radio, New York. John, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thanks for, for reaching out to me, especially on this issue, because, you know, the we see much of the mainstream media, including New York Times, um, really kind of pandering to this dog and pony show that, uh, that Canada and the Pope is putting on. Uh, and look, I'm not suggesting they don't have plenty of Native participants in this show, but the vast majority of Native people are outraged by what was put on display this week. Yeah. Now, something you could say more about that, John. Of course, we're talking about uh, Pope Francis giving this uh, apology in Canada. I believe it was in Alberta. Uh, this apology for uh, the mistreatment, abuse and uh, killing of uh, native children in the country uh, through these residential schools that have increasingly been getting more attention uh, in recent years. But, you know, has been something that indigenous people have been talking about for years and years and years of course, as uh, uh, the main victims of it. Uh, He said, in part, quote, I humbly beg forgiveness for the evil committed by so many Christians against the indigenous people, uh, referring to the impacts on the indigenous communities as, quote, catastrophic and deplorable. And like you're saying, John, uh, you know, not all indigenous folks are really feeling the the sincerity of this apology. And I was hoping you could break down some of these contradictions. Well, he, he's not apologizing for the church. He's, he, he literally deflects this to suggest that, you know, he's apologizing for the role that Christians played. This is kind of like what, what happens all the time, right? We, we see this with, with police. They make it sound like we apologize for those officers or, or those bad apples. This isn't about bad Christians or just bad apples within the church. This was the church. 
The church was in this unholy marriage with, uh, with both the United States and Canada to operate these schools. I mean, this wasn't just uh, this wasn't just bad behavior by a few rogue uh, clergy uh, clergymen. And he didn't even apologize for the clergy. He just said he apologized for the role that Christians played in this. And and I find that a complete deflection. And it is not taking responsibility. I mean, and let's be clear here. The church is responsible for the doctrine of Christian discovery, which is a 15th century manifestation of the church giving orders to the Christian nations of Europe to go out and essentially pillage native communities, and both in Africa and in, in, in the Western Hemisphere. I mean, the, the doctrine of Christian discovery is responsible for slavery, for genocide, and this whole idea, and, and I would argue that it actually is the, is the foundation of what we know as racism today. And the, and the fact of the matter is these churches or these schools exist because of the doctrine of Christian discovery, which is which the church, the Vatican and a series of popes are specifically responsible for. And when I hear this, this pope apologizing for the role that Christians played, that that does not take ownership of what the church has done. And keep in mind, if you want to question the sincerity of this thing, let's keep in mind that this pope, Pope Francis, finalized this, the, the sainthood of Huna Paracera out there on the West Coast, who was responsible for the, for the deaths of many, many children himself personally because of the missions that he ran out, uh, you know, out in what is now considered California. So when, and, and we, he knew the protest that we had then to this idea of not just the, the beatification, but the canonization of, of uh, Huna Paracera. And yet, he, didn't, he, he neglected to, to pay any attention to the harms that were done. So when he's apologizing for, for the role of Christians, he's, he made a saint out of one of them. I mean, so I, I have to hold this man uh, responsible for, for, some, for his own actions. I'm not saying that he ran a residential school, but the idea, I mean, and we've seen this with the whole clergy sex abuse scandal. And I would argue that these schools, both in the U.S. and Canada, if they don't lay the foundation for for all of this clergy sex abuse that we've seen, you know, and I know some of it exists in Europe as well. So maybe it didn't start it, but it created a fertile ground for this for all of this. And it's not just the Catholic Church, by the way. The, the, there are other church denominations. The Catholics were responsible for about seventy percent of the schools on the Canadian side, and probably closer to fifty percent of the the schools on the on the U.S. side. And you know, and the other thing that the Pope neglected, he never mentioned sexual abuse. Again, avoids that like the plague. So, no, this, this, this apology was not just shallow, but it's like he was apologizing for somebody else. I mean, yeah, I'm, it is not only offensive, but it's also embarrassing to see these elected, these band council chiefs, you know, pandering to this guy. Most of them are, are likely Catholics themselves, so they've already been completely assimilated and now have been so indoctrinated that they cannot even see what is being what is being done to them with this so-called apology. And to place a headdress on on the Pope's head is, I mean, it's, I mean, it almost made me throw up in my mouth. I mean, it is really that that outrageous. 
And, you know, I think the other outrageous part of this is the fact that uh, the Catholic Church really has not atoned in a material way for the—I mean, the harm has been immeasurable. You you cannot put a price on the harm that was done, but but you can start by actually uh, uh, putting some money behind, uh, uh, you know, the, the words that are so incredibly empty. I mean, even Justin Trudeau, who is just as bad as 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 uh, the, the pope or any representative of the of the Catholic Church in regard to um, how uh, uh, the indigenous people, uh, the First Nations people have been treated. But even he said that more needed to be done by the church. And while uh, the pope's visit had an enormous impact on survivors, it was just a first step. I mean, the, the church has paid about $50 million, um, and, and they claim they intend to add $30 million more over the next five years uh, in reparations uh, in Canada. Um, and, and I just feel like that is such a paltry, paltry amount compared to how much money the Catholic Church actually has and how much they owe. Let's not forget where the Catholic Church gained much of its wealth. Right. They're, they essentially took Billions of dollars in blood and treasure from the Western Hemisphere, you know, through uh, through native exploitation. I mean, um, gold and silver in North and South um, South America. I mean, there's incredible amounts of of. I mean, you're right. You can't put a value on the harm, but you can put a value on what they took. And and there's so much in terms. I mean, the, here's the thing about residential schools. We lost more land during that 150 years of residential schools than we ever lost. We lost population our population decreased incredibly so this was a scheme this was genocide this wasn't just child abuse so when you single this thing out like oh yeah there were bad christians and they behaved badly and they and they mistreated children you're ignoring the role the catholic church and and other denom- denominations have played in the perpetration of genocide and i'm sorry justin trudeau trying to deflect more responsibility onto the church is is almost laughable too because let's keep in mind these were government funded and they and they made contracts. They they funded the churches to to run these things. So, I mean, at the end of the day, Trudeau's got no uh, no room to deflect any of this onto the church. But I think we do because, I mean, there's there's two things that go on here. There there is the abuse. There are the crimes committed against children, but then there's the crime committed against humanity, and that is what genocide is. When you look at the definition of genocide, have you ever broken it down completely? I mean, the definition of genocide says it means any of the following acts committed with the intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnical, racial or religious group, such as killing members of the group. Well, that happened at these schools, causing seriously serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group. Well, that happened at these schools, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction. That's what assimilation was all about. Impacting measures intended to prevent births. Girls were sterilized in these schools. And, of course, forcibly transferring uh, children of the group to another group. Though That's the definition of genocide. It sounds like they drew, drew up that definition based on the existence of these residential schools that U.S. and Canada uh, uh, funded and approved and promoted, built, and, and the churches ran. I mean, that's deplorable. Yeah, definitely. In the last couple of minutes here, John, I'm just thinking about, 
you know, I remember, I think it was Bill Clinton that gave like an apology for slavery or something some years back, which, you know, is one thing. But even if the Pope's apology did, you know, include all these aspects that we're speaking to, I mean, is apology enough or is the Catholic Church, which you correctly point out, gained so much of its wealth through uh, the genocide of indigenous people, it seems like they'll need to give up a piece of the pie as well when we're talking uh, reparations to try to make some form or kind of restitution for these historic crimes. Well, the, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in Canada has not implemented any of the action items that came out of that report, out, out of that, those findings. They did start to cut some checks. And they cut some checks uh, to survivors of residential schools. Well, here's the problem with that. If we only let them pay off survivors of the residential schools, then we're giving them a pass on the genocide. Look, there has to be restoration of lands. There has to be restoration of autonomy. And we have to be recognized and acknowledged for as a distinct people. So our population can grow. So our culture can uh, can continue to, uh, to foster. That's not, I mean, you're right about this whole idea of the apologies. The other thing that Clinton, if you recall, he apologized for the coup against the Hawaiian kingdom. <laughs> and, and, and when that, and, and that was not just an apology by Clinton, it was actually a joint resolution of Congress. And when the Hawaiian people tried to use that resolution in, in some form of a land claim, the court said joint resolutions of Congress have no legal standing. So, I mean, these apologies literally mean nothing. I mean, they, they don't. And, and if you look at the, the, the wordsmithing that went on with the Pope's words, you can tell that this thing was crafted to avoid liability. And, and to me, that is, I mean, that's a crime on top of a crime. Look, I don't believe in heaven or hell. But if I did, I would suggest there's a warm place sitting there for Pope Francis when, when all is said and done. <laughs> well, we thank you so much, John, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And it's Friday, which means it's time for another edition of our weekly segment, The Red Spin Report, where we discuss sports, politics, and struggle with Nate Wallace, co-host of the Red Spin Sports Podcast. Nate, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, Sean and Jackie. Glad to be back. Absolutely. Good to have you back, Nate. And of course, the saga of Brittany Griner continues as the WNBA star continues to be uh, detained in Russia. It's being reported now that the U.S. government is trying to uh, have a kind of prisoner swap that would include uh, Brittany Griner and a guy by the name of Paul Whelan in exchange for uh, Russian arms dealer Victor Bout. And at this point, it doesn't seem, at least from what we, what's been reported publicly, it doesn't seem like uh, the Russian government is terribly interested in this deal. Uh, but Nate, I was definitely wondering how you're sort of uh, viewing it as this thing continues to unfold. Yeah, I mean, I've read a lot on this, like, you know, just recently, and uh, I think it's pretty clear that 
if this were a proposal to have Brittany Griner return to the U.S. Um, in exchange for Victor Bout one for one, I think this would, would be getting done right now. But the problem is that the pressure from Paul Whelan's family, former U.S. Marine accused of spying, arrested um, in Russia late in December of 2018 uh, with a flash drive that had like, the names of, of uh, Russian border guards, um, you know, even though he was claiming that he was, uh, you know, he thought he was just there to help a friend with his wedding in Russia to a Russian woman and trying to help expedite that while he was working back in Michigan. So he had gone over to Russia that he was then arrested by security agents and, uh, you know, did not have time to realize that, like, what he thought was on the flash drive was not what was really on the flash drive. So anyways, I mean, this guy was discharged uh, from the Marines in 2008 for trying to pass that, like a bad check or something for $10,000 um, in Iraq. Um, he does have a dubious record and his family is actually trying to use that as a case in point of like why he surely would not have been elevated up to this level of spycraft. But, you know, I mean, just because you, you, you get into some dirt doesn't mean that, uh, you know, the U.S. can't find you useful. Uh, so the, the introduction of that guy into the fray, I think, is complicating matters. Uh, you know, Sergey Lavrov, Russian foreign minister, is in Uzbekistan now. And um, there was talk yesterday, there, there was a planned phone call between he and, uh, and U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken, which uh, suddenly did not happen. Um, and, and Lavrov, you know, made it clear that, uh, you know, his schedule was very busy and, uh, you know, he's going to try to find a way to work him into it, uh, Lincoln, that is, over the weekend. Um, so definitely a little, you know, they haven't talked since the beginning of the special military operation in February at all. So uh, the idea of diplomacy, I mean, just it's a larger problem, which is that we can't have negotiations. Come on, we can't allow Zelensky to negotiate a, a you know, settlement or the, the Ukrainian government to negotiate a settlement the, the West and the collective West using sort of its, uh, uh, you know, the power over Ukraine, its uh, control over Ukraine to, to insist on that. But the only thing that brings Sergey Lavrov in the conversation, well, not yet, uh, due to Lavrov's delay, is uh, the idea of trying to get Brittany Griner home and, to a lesser extent, I think, in public consciousness in the U.S., Paul Whelan uh, returned uh, in exchange for Victor. So it just shows how, how terrible what a terrible state diplomacy is in right now. And, you know, typically you would think a State Department would be trying to seek solutions while it's kind of like the, the Pentagon or the you know, Department of Defense would be kind of ramping up the war stuff. But now it's a complete, don't have any any diplomacy going on other than, I guess, trying to, you know, extract Brittany Griner and Paul Whelan now too. And the problem is, is that, well, when you have terrible relations like this, terrible relationships like this and like, total lack of trust, um, you know, that's not going to be a simple matter. And, you know, Nate, I do wonder what caused the U.S. government, uh, uh, the U.S. State Department in particular, to do an about face on this deal with Russia? Because, you know, as we've talked about before, Russia actually offered this deal to the U.S. back in May. And the U.S. just mm-hmm. just like, you know, didn't respond at all. So now all of a sudden there's this flurry that all the United States is offering Russia a deal. And, you know, we talked about how that's not true yesterday. Uh, This is actually the deal that Russia offered the U.S. months ago. But what do you think caused 
Anthony Blinken to do an about face on this deal? Do you think it was like the growing public pressure or do you think it was LeBron James's comments that he made that he sort of had to walk back on a little bit because conservative, you know, white media in the U.S. went lost their minds about what he said or or I mean, what was it just the fact that um, the midterms are coming up and the Democrats have to kind of look to be doing something good for somebody? Right. I think it's all of the above. I think all of that is coalesced and, and it combined, you know, add in the inflation crisis, add in the gas price, um, you know, just crisis, and especially as, it, as it's affecting Europe. And that's, you know, going to spill over to the U.S. Uh, you have all these crises that are that are just cascading. And when the, and this, the LeBron James thing and him speaking up, I think, had an effect. I think the larger just public pressure, I mean, forget, remember the Democrats and their constituency, they serve um, – you know, they, they play the identity politics game in a very cynical way. And so they, they've exploited a lot of, uh, you know, the, 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 they, they, you know, what do you call it, pinkwashing, using the LGBTQ type issues to you know, give the impression that they're, you know, more, you know, more progressive than they are and whatnot. And I think that that's kind of part of it. The fact that she's also a, you know, a, a, a black woman who's, um, you know, who, who was, has a wife and 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 and, and has you know been proudly out, you know, as, as a lesbian for years. Um, and the fact that she's in Russia, a country where they they love to use the uh, you know, talk about the gay propaganda laws there, and you know, and kind of use that as a pretext for why we should all hate Russia, like, and why we should uh, you know support, I guess, you know, by you know, not directly stated, but you know, implied that we should support war against them, essentially. So I think all these things are coalescing to put pressure on Biden, criticism of Biden from Brittany Griner's wife, um, from prominent figures like James has all contributed to this and has led to a situation where, you know, Biden probably is even like, oh, oh, oh I guess I better get Anthony uh, to try to do something about that. And uh, I kind of just see it as that. I think the midterms are ultimately, though, they're trying to show they're doing something for sure. Yeah, I mean, it just seems to me throughout this whole situation that, I mean, the public uh, has, I think, very obviously been very concerned with uh, uh, the fate of Brittany Griner. Meanwhile, uh, the, you know, the, the Biden administration, which is supposedly so concerned with any and all aspects dealing with uh, the war in Ukraine, uh, that just doesn't seem to be a lot of movement, except perhaps opportunistically. Uh, switching gears a little bit here, Nate, uh, major news in the world of professional wrestling as Vince McMahon has announced his retirement from World Wrestling Entertainment that reportedly is connected by uh, these investigations into uh, uh, sexual misconduct and uh, more to the point, uh, hush money basically being paid around that misconduct. Uh, It's been reported that between 2006 and 2022, this is according to an internal investigation by the WWE, between 06 and 2022, uh, Vince McMahon made payments totaling $14.6 million, uh, basically in payouts to, you know, various women that McMahon was either involved with or harassed or things like this. And the creative reigns of WWE have now been passed on to Paul Levesque, which fans know better as Triple H or Hunter Hearst Helmsley. And this is, you know, noteworthy for a number of reasons. I mean, anyone who follows professional wrestling, I think, 
felt that Vince McMahon would have his hands on anything and everything involved with WWE until his heart stopped beating. Literally, I don't think anyone expected him to stop until he died. And many people in the past have commented that, you know, Triple H as, you know, uh, you know, more of a wrestler's wrestler type of guy in terms of his thinking would vastly improve uh, the television product. But be that as it may, I mean, it seemed at the beginning when all of this first came out, that McMahon wasn't really taking it that seriously. I mean, I talked about here on the show about how he went out live on SmackDown uh, with full entrance, doing the McMahon strut and all that to the ring and basically cutting a promo saying that, you know, in in substance, you know, he was like not really going anywhere, going to be doing anything in response to these allegations. And we've come a long way in a short time from that almost gloating to him now uh, retiring. But I'm wondering how you're seeing this, Nate. No, absolutely. I mean, Vince McMahon, like this whole thing, he, you know, strident sort of rhetoric. He was, you know, advancing, you know, just, just, all right. In Connecticut at the, the WWE event, like was, uh, you know, sound, sounded defiant, sounded like, uh, that, you know, he wasn't, it was all, it fit completely within the profile of WWE, you know, that you're, you know, you, you know, I'm not going to be taken down. I'm tough. I'm going to, I can overcome all this. Like, you know, sort of like, projection of strength, the projection of, of uh, invincibility, you know, no pun intended. And, uh, you know, I think that as more and more discussions with attorneys go on, the, the mounting, you know, like revelations of uh, hush, hush money payments and just the fact that, like, you know, I think probably he's coming clean about, you know, just times this has happened. Um, this just lead, led to like the desire to try to put a lid on this for WWE and to uh, take him out of the spotlight so that uh, for, for PR reasons at this point. I mean, the 2019 case, uh, the hush money being paid is the one that kind of brought all this to light at first um, uh, with you know, one of his many affairs. I, and I, I've long suspected that the marriage between Linda McMahon was like pretty much an open one, sort of a one of yeah, business convenience and we're seeing now that eventually just that there's, there's too much smoke for you know, the status quo to persist. And uh, despite all the bluster from Vince McMahon, it, it, you see it for what it is. It was just, and uh, now we're you know, confronting the reality or WWE's confronting the reality of that for sure. Yeah, and I mean, you know, I, it's, I don't know if they had an open marriage. It certainly was open on Vince's part. Like, I, he literally right. used to go right. on right. Howard Stern sure. and basically brag about cheating <laughs> on his wife. But, uh, Jackie, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I do wonder, you know, though, as as we're talking about McMahon, the the literal face and the creator of modern wrestling, quote unquote, retiring, doesn't he still control a lot of the rights to the content and basically wouldn't be hurting financially, even if he's not, you know, in the spotlight feeding his ego, which is, you know, this was always a Vince McMahon vanity project. But, you know, financially, he doesn't really lose, does he? No, I mean, well, he just can run this via proxy, essentially, through his daughter. I mean, who knows, like, who's actually, what, you know, making the decisions when they issue a, you know, a statement, whether he's publicly out there doing so, or you have, uh, I think Stephanie McMahon, I believe his daughter's name is taking over, um, whether it's her, um, it's not good. I mean, I, I highly doubt that given, uh, the, the, like you said, the empire he's built up, it being so centered on the idea of Vince McMahon and the character of Vince McMahon, that that he's not going to be consulted in, in decisions that are made just because he's 
officially, you know, uh, retiring. So I think, yeah, absolutely. I don't think this is the end at all of McMahon's influence in the sport. I mean, it's clearly staying a family affair. So, yeah, I don't, I don't see major changes coming. Yeah, and you know, I, I appreciate you raising um, the the involvement of Stephanie McMahon, Vince's daughter, who is a high level executive in the company and has been for some time. And I forgot to mention earlier when I was talking about Paul Levesque, uh, Triple H, that's Stephanie's husband. So literally, the two most powerful people in WWE right now is Vince McMahon's literal daughter and his son in law. You know what I mean? And so I don't know exactly what's that going to look like in real time, but it's hard for me to feel like Vince is really walking away in the way that we typically think are going to take his hand off the product. But who knows? You know what I'm saying? But one thing is for sure, to, to Jackie's uh, question, I mean, whatever the details, I mean, there's just no way that Vince McMahon is no longer going to be profiting from this in in some kind of way uh, from this company that he's built over these years on top of the fact that he owns most of wrestling's recorded history through archives and things like that. But we thank you so much, Nate, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Friday, July 29th, 2022. And of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call here by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today. Anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. But that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you would, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can holler at us. That's right, Sean. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices and comrades. That's y'all to reach out and touch us here at By Any Means Necessary in Washington, D.C. DC, you can do that at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time by calling us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But you can also listen to our shows at sputniknews.com slash radio. Click on the plus sign and type in by any means necessary. You can also hear us on sputnik.mave. That's M-A-V-E dot digital. And you can listen live on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390. AM in the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time each weekday. And we're streaming live for your viewing pleasure right now on Rumble. That's rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. The chat is live. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. We most certainly do. And we're very happy to be joined for the hour today by Dr. Akineli Umoja, a professor of Africana Studies at Georgia State University and the author of We Will Shoot Back, Armed Resistance in the Mississippi Freedom Movement. Dr. Umoja, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me again. 
Thanks. Absolutely. And Dr. Umoja, we wanted to have you on today for a number of reasons. I mean, number one, of course, we're having this conversation on the eve of Black August, a time to study, a time to train, a time to fast and a time to fight. Uh, We've also recently marked what would have been the 122nd birthday of Queen Mother Moore, who is really, I mean, the, the mother of the modern reparations movement in the United States a person who was thoroughly Pan-African in her uh, politics and in her views, and also someone who advocated for political prisoners, who, of course, are the uh, main substance of Black August. And I really wanted to take some time today to talk about Queen Mother Moore, her history, her work, her politics, and why it's still relevant today. Because There's a lot of confusing narratives around the question of reparations and even black identity in the United States, as Moore was also someone who, you know, advocated for uh, calling black folks in this country Africans and asserting our Africanness, if you will. So I was hoping you could begin by telling us about Queen Mother Moore. Who was she? What was her motivation and why is her work still worth the uh worth our study here in the 21st century uh, good question uh queen mother moore is um one of the most phenomenal yet unsung figures in our history the history of our people uh in the world i won't even say in the united states uh she was actually born uh july 27th 1898 in New Iberia, Louisiana. And you think about it, 1898, what, were, uh, what was like for a person like Queen Mother Moore, you know, that was the, during a period of time where lynching of black people was common, right? There was, a, you know, we didn't have any voting rights. Uh, 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 you know, we were basically Jim Crow, particularly where she was at in the South during that particular time. And she would uh, grow up and become part of the, of the uh, Universal Negro Improvement Association, uh, headed by Marcus Garvey in the 1920s in Louisiana. Uh, she would always tell this story about how when um, um, Marcus Garvey was being prevented from speaking in New Orleans, how she... Uh, she would tell the story about, hey, hey, he's going to be prevented from speaking in New Orleans um, and by the police and by the mayor and how hundreds of black people, including Queen Mother Moore, came with guns to uh, demand that he speak, demanding speak, Garvey speak, and the police and the mayor backed up and Garvey was able to give his address that day. She would later move to uh, New York and become a part of the Communist Party in New York, as several other black people did during that time. And she began to work particularly around tenant issues and other issues. But eventually she became disenchanted with the Communist Party and began to fight around black people, uh, challenging particularly black men who were charged with uh, capital offense, the capital offense of having sexual relations with white women. Uh, uh, believe, uh, believe it or not, 
and they were placed on death row, particularly in the South. And so she would campaign against that. But then in the 1950s and early 60s, she began to campaign around reparations. And Queen Mother Moore is responsible for lobbying other black organizations during that time, the Nation of Islam, the Republic of New Africa, the uh, Black Panther Party, the uh, National Black Assembly, other groups during that time around this issue of reparations. So, so to the extent that people are discussing reparations today, Queen Mother Moore led the foundation or created the foundation for that movement. And, you know, you know, Dr., <laughs> What you just ended that with, the fact that Queen Mother Moore led the foundation of the reparations movement, kind of dovetails into a question I want to ask you about her role in uh, the issues of, you know, gender struggles in the movement, because in, in, in the nationalist movement in particular, you know, because she she did start uh, uh, an organization called the Universal Association of Ethiopian Women or the UAEW that in 1955 that challenged capital punishment of black men um, and, and, you know, was a, a not just a pivotal figure, but a towering giant in the struggle for uh, liberation, in the struggle against uh, mass incarceration, and in the struggle for uh, uh, reparations for African people in this country. And I'm wondering how you feel about the fact that her legacy is denied, like just completely erased as if she didn't even exist by this new generation of folks who claim that they are advocating for reparations and and what that does to really erase a, a, a giant in the movement who is a woman and, and how that that seems kind of sexist to me. But but how you you feel about that being done, the fact that, you know, these new ADOS reparations folks, FBA, whatever they want to call themselves, completely ignored this great woman who is literally the foundation of the movement they're trying to usurp. And they don't seem to see that they're actually acting not only in the service of white supremacy and settler colonialism and xenophobia, but also, in a way, patriot, uh, patriarchy as well. Well, you said it, but I think it's, it's uh, even broader than Queen Mother Moore. Our, our women, women of African descent, black women, have played a very significant role in this reparations movement, going back to Callie House, who in the 1890s organized the first really reparations organization, 300,000 people, and she was charged like Marcus Garvey and put in prison to stop that movement, uh, you know, a movement for pensions for people who have been enslaved. You, you, but you have other figures, including Queen Mother Moore, but even past her, like Dorothy Benton Lewis, in Baltimore, Maryland, who began to organize people and advocate for reparations. She's one of the founders of the National Coalition of Blacks for Reparations in America. But black women have played this significant role, even uh, going back to the 18th century, where you have a sister by the name of Linda Sutton, who, um, after she was released, after her slave owner passed in Massachusetts, uh, she sued for uh, a pension for her unpaid service and labor. Uh, so black women have been involved from the inception of reparations. They still are involved today. And we have some current 
uh, champions of reparations uh, like Adwa Ayatoro, who is one of the leaders and founders of the uh, uh, the National Conference of Black Lawyers, and she was also a founder of Encobra. So, you know, it's Queen Mother Moore, but it's several of our sisters who have been uh, on the forefront of this reparations fight, and we must not only document them, their importance to this movement and, and, and give them the proper recognition uh, but we have to ensure the reparations that benefits both men and women. I would even say up into the day where we have um, people like Robin Ruth Simmons, who in um, Everston, Illinois, campaigned to get the municipal reparations in that particular city uh, for uh, demonstrating the pattern of of. of discrimination of black people in terms of real estate in that city with redlining and whatever. And there's one compensation for residents of that particular city in Illinois. So again, we, we have a, um, what do you call it? A intergenerational fight of our sisters uh, in the leadership of our reparations movement. Yeah, and that's really a beautiful thing. And, you know, back in 2019, uh, Dr. Moji, you wrote a really interesting um, article on Queen Mother Moore entitled uh, Matriarch of the Captive Nation for the uh, uh, African-American Intellectual History Society. I'll drop the link to that in the chat. And what I found fascinating is just her um, her her role as an, an organizer. You mentioned that she was for a time in the Communist Party and, you know, she would uh, take some of those uh, aspects in terms of organizational structure and I would argue analysis as well um, into her revolutionary nationalist politics with, you know, groups like uh, uh, the African People's Party, which, you know, according to your piece, had a uh, democratic centralist uh, uh, sort of structure in terms of its leadership. It also, you know, she also implored uh, uh, the members of that organization and others to really take up issues that directly, you know, impact the plight of uh, African people and not uh, not not simply uh, sort of be uh, just focused on, you know, reparations or simply be a single issue and things like that as all these things tie together. And so from your experience with uh, Queen Mother Moore, Dr. Umoja, because I know you, you know, had the opportunity to spend some amount of time with, with her personally. What was it like sort of seeing her in action, the way that she operated, the way that she sort of analyzed and understood things, and perhaps most importantly, her dynamic with people, like on an interpersonal level? Because I'm sure she's someone who knew and understood that she was held in a, a high regard by this wing of the movement. And so I'm just wondering what that dynamic was like uh, from your memory. I would actually say that not just with this wing of the movement, but just with black folks in general. Mm. Um, I, I first met Queen Mother Moore, as you met, you know, you you uh, alluded to I, that I had personal contact with her. I was 18 at the time. I went to a, uh, I was asked to go to a meeting to assist her. I didn't know who this, who she was growing up in Compton, California. My, at that time, I met her at a, uh, a festival, really, in Los Angeles, or Bazaar, I should say. And and she—that was the first time I got to hear her speak. And she was just a very charismatic and powerful speaker. And she was that type of speaker 
that folks who had a education, if, if you will, or people who didn't have the letters behind their name could follow what she was saying and be inspired by what she was saying. I would later hear her speak at a rally, and I remember hearing other, uh, seeing other speakers at that rally. It was in a park in South Central LA, and some speakers didn't draw the attention of everyone who was gathered. Queen Mother Moore got the wine <laughs> and folks to stop playing dominoes and drinking their wine and listen to what she had to say. So she could speak as a public speaker to a variety of people. But then she was very effective in small groups and small talking to small groups of people and being effective organizer. Again, coming we, as I mentioned, she was a part of the Universal Negro Improvement Association, Marcus Garvey's organization. So she had that experience of organizing black people. Remember how Garvey organized the largest movement of black people in the history of the world, right? And so she knew how to speak to people in small groups. She knew how to speak to common folk, and she knew how to speak to intellectuals. And that's one of the things that I look at the most and I'm most inspired by in terms of her style of dealing with people. She could take concept, concepts, a very, um, very um, sophisticated concepts and break them down for people without formal education. And she could, she could really explain those concepts. She figured out different ways of saying things. She also thought of great uh, metaphors and was very uh, adept at storytelling to inspire black people and to um, help them understand the concepts that she was talking about. So, you know, I think she was just a, ma a masterful educator and organizer for black people. Yeah, you know, and, and I wonder with such an incredible impact on a movement, a fight for reparations that goes on, what does that reparation struggle look like today that, that she has left? Uh, certainly in Congress, uh, nothing's happening. But what, what has it looked like across the states? Well, I think, again, I think that reparations is happening today on multiple levels, and I think she would be happy about that. When I say it's happening on multiple levels, I mean, globally, you see uh, the countries in the Caribbean, British-speaking countries demanding reparations from the British Empire and changing their relationship to the British Empire. Uh, a few years ago, uh, Venezuela became the first Latin American country to align themselves with the struggle for African people of, of reparations across the globe. And you do have some countries on the African continent beginning to call for reparations. Here inside the United States, though, we have movement happening in local communities, as I mentioned, in Evanston, and we, we have dozens of other cities uh, where there are campaigns and commissions being formed around the reparations issue. And then, of course, you know, in California, there's this uh, statewide um, uh, task force uh, that's forming a commission to examine reparations in the state of California. And, and we, we mentioned before, so, and I, as you and I would agree with, 
their slow motion in Congress, but it finally got out of committee uh, after being there since 1989 when it was filed by John Congress, uh, Conyers, uh, Congressman from Detroit at that time. And But, you know, since that time in the last few years, at least it's made it out of Congress and at least it, it, it's eligible to be on the floor. But in my own estimation, the only thing that will get um, uh, reparations on that scale has to be a massive movement of our people, uh, much similar to the movement we had to get rid of segregation and to earn voting rights. You know, um, it's going to take us being able to mobilize, um, be disruptive if necessary. Uh, um, and so, I mean, if we look at just our recent history, there were several things that began to move only because people were in the street after George Floyd and and the killing of Breonna Taylor. That that massive movement around the country began to move certain things. Even in our local community, I live here, here in Atlanta, there were some Confederate monuments that people have been challenging for years. But then after those mobilizations, they, they uh, decided to get rid of them all of a sudden. <laughs> so, but I think it takes that type of massive, sustained movement on the part of our, our people to bring about reparations and with the support of our allies, not only inside the United States, but globally. Yeah, and I really appreciate you describing the way that Queen Mother Moore would speak to people and relate to people and how she was able to effectively communicate from, with everyone from the cats on the corner to uh, uh, the scholars. You know what I mean? Like that to me sounds like someone who's a real political educator, someone who understands the dialogue aspect of uh uh, of political education in terms of how we speak and relate to people, which is something that we're always talking about here on uh, by any means necessary. And like when you discuss how she would break down these complex uh, concepts into uh, terms that, you know, folks could understand or what we may call a kind of popular way of talking about it. I mean, that also evidences a deep understanding of those same complex topics. And so, I mean, a lot, I think, to, to learn there and, and and even in speaking about it, it also reminds me of uh, Malcolm X, who who had a similar kind of appeal. I mean, this was a real grassroots intellectual in the sense that he was not credentialed. He wasn't really formally schooled. I believe he dropped out in like the eighth grade. But yet and still, he was as easily understood uh, uh, in the streets of Harlem as he was in the halls of, you know, the Oxford, you know, debate type of situation and things like that. And so even beyond sort of uh, uh, just the work itself, which is impressive all on its own as organizers, I think we should take note of how effective these people were at communicating directly with uh, poor working and oppressed people and how that's such an important aspect of this organizing work. But we're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. 
Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's two. 02521-1320. Myself and Jackie Lutman continue to be joined by Dr. Akineli Umoja. And Dr. Umoja, we've been talking about the life and work of Queen Mother Moore, really the matriarch of the modern reparations movement. Um, and I wanted to ask a kind of broad philosophical question that, that I think could be helpful in terms of how we're thinking about uh, reparations today within this context of Queen Mother Moore. And that question is, why is it important to think about reparations from a pan-African perspective? Does that mean that black folks in this country who are descended of those enslaved Africans, does that mean that we're giving away our birthright by trying to make the reparations question too expansive? Why is that kind of critical pan-Africanist perspective important to hold when we have this discussions about reparations from your vantage point? Well, I think there are several ways to look at it. Number one, I think that we are an African people. That is our origin and the destinies of our people worldwide are linked. Um, that's what we start from that. And then I think we, if we uh, start from that point, you mentioned Malcolm X before the break and Malcolm X talked about, how the unity of African people, particularly in the Western Hemisphere, and he meant all the way from Canada, all the way down to South America, that our unity was more powerful than a nuclear bomb. And so we began to unite and support and have solidarity with each other, then we can be effective at liberating ourselves throughout the globe. Now, in terms of the question of reparations, I think reparations has to be looked at, it, particularly if we look at it in terms of international as well as domestic law. We have to look at a specific claim, right, as, as, as well as who is, is responsible for the violation as well as who was victimized. So, for instance, when the Caribbean countries call for reparations for people who are descendants uh, of uh, or who were victimized by British colonialism and British Commonwealth, and they talk about African and indigenous people there, then I can't, as somebody whose ancestors were from uh, Mississippi, Louisiana, um, Virginia, I'm not a recipient of those particular reparations. If there's a claim against uh, the United States or the slaveholders, because I agree with the definition given by, by Cobra, reparations are due not only for governments, but for corporations, institutions, and for families uh, who are responsible for our, our not only enslavement, but other abuse, then those specific entities can be charged for enslaving or oppressing my ancestors. Because why I say enslaving or oppressing is we're not just talking about reparations for slavery, but for, for the vestiges or legacy of slavery. That includes things like racial profiling. Now, <laughs> let's expand that a little bit further. Um, and this is why, particularly looking at like a state of California that didn't have a long history 
of cattle slavery, but there is structural racism that occurred in, in California. That occurred not only for my ancestors who were enslaved in Mississippi, Louisiana, Virginia, and other places, Georgia, but also people who might have come uh, later who are subject to racial profiling, uh, subject to redlining. So I think in each case and each claim, and reparations for me is not just one uh, one-time thing, but it's a process and it's looking at, again, specific charges, then um, people who came later could be subject to the same type of structural racism that my, me or my uh, family members would be subject to. Am I, am I making it clear? Yeah, definitely. And, and you make a, and, I, and I appreciate you breaking it down that way. And I hadn't thought about it in quite those terms, but I think you're correct because, you know, like if you're talking about California, then I feel like, you know, we're talking about like Chinese and other immigrants that came to uh, uh, what is now the U.S., like you say, certainly sometime after black folks did, but who also faced a brutal racism when they got here and also brutal exploitation of their labor, you know, not to mention these uh, uh, anti-Chinese, you know, racist policies, the whole yellow peril thing. And this is just one immigrant group I'm talking about. You know what I mean? And, and so I definitely get what you're getting at here. And so and, and this is this is why it's so important, I think, to take the sort of long view of history when we talk about reparations, because, I mean, the institution of slavery itself was connected to so many other things. As you note, corporations, universities, banks, all these sorts of things that 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 certainly uh, uh, were part of the oppression of black folks, but but others as well. Uh, Jackie Lukman. Yeah, you know, and and I love how you pointed out, you know, all of the different uh injustices, the ongoing injustices after slavery uh, was officially legally ended that that our ancestors endured. And certainly mass incarceration is one of those things. And that's something that we continue to fight against. So how do you see uh, the, the struggle against, you know, mass incarceration and particularly the struggle to free political prisoners who are of African descent and who are of Latin American or of Mexican descent or who are indigenous as a part of this reparations movement that's going on today? Okay, I, I'm not sure if y'all clearly understood what I was saying. Mm-hmm. I spoke about people who came after. I'm talking about people who came from Haiti. Oh, I see. Ah, I see. You, you meant from elsewhere in the diaspora. Right, because Got you. Live in our communities, when I say our, I'm talking about people whose ancestors were enslaved in this country, and they become a part and subject. When a police stop uh, somebody in Compton, California, or, 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 or Atlanta, Georgia, or Washington, D.C., they not, as uh, Malcolm X will say, they don't ask what part of, <laughs> where are you from? They not ask you if you're a Christian or Muslim or whatever. They just see a black person. And so they're subject to the same type of racism that I would be subject to. You understand? Right. The Chinese people and other people, that's a different question, a different type of reparations claim. And I support those, too, for indigenous folk, for, um, you know, people of Asian descent. Of course, well, you know, we know about the case of, of Japanese Americans who were held in concentration camps. That's a, those are different questions than for people of African descent and the legacy of slavery. Y- y'all feel me? Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Okay. So now, 
you you ask to what does that get to mass incarceration? As I as said, there's structural racism that's occurred, which is the legacy of slavery. We know clearly that uh, mass incarceration is clearly a legacy of slavery in this country. When they did the 13th Amendment, right? And, you know, as Ava DuVernay uh, uh, beautifully uh, demonstrated in her documentary called 13, when they did the 13th Amendment to the Constitution, they said involuntary servitude will be ended except for punishment for crime. And in that way, we had uh, chain gangs, we had other things in Atlanta, uh, I said Atlanta, across the South where black people were re-enslaved after the, the formal ending of chattel slavery or racial slavery in this country. And so, and so uh, black people were re-enslaved and then what we see now is mass incarceration with particularly with the uh, target of black communities through the so-called drug war or whatever, that's, a, again, just another uh, claim that we make on, on this reparations issue that affects our people. When we talk about political prisoners, though, it's, an, again, another aspect. And this is why I think while we have a reparations committee, we got to really study this and figure out what we're making demands on. But political prisoners, if we look at something like COINTELPRO, the counterintelligence uh, program, which was a form of low-intensity war against the black community. And I will say that Queen Mother Moore was always, as, as Sister Jackie pointed out, concerned about this question of the incarceration, particularly political incarceration of our people, and tying that to the reparations issue. But <clears throat> this COINTELPRO program that incarcerated people, and some, of, some folks we still have, incarcerated today, like Dr. Matulu Shakur and others, to, it was one thing that not, it was not just a violation against them and our, their families, but it created some instability in our communities as black people, took leaders, grassroots leaders off the street. Where I grew up in California, when you started to have black Panthers not only incarcerated, but forced into exile, people like Osana Shakur forced into exile, right? Or killed, assassinated. But when you don't have these leaders on the street, a vacuum is there, and this is why we had the emergence of the Crips and Bloods, right? Because a certain type of grassroots leadership isn't there to provide political direction. We mentioned earlier about how Queen Mother Moore was able to speak to certain elements of our people. And this is one of the reasons why a person like Dr. Matulu Shakur is uh, incarcerated today, because he did, he was engaged in organizing young brothers who were part of street organizations, so-called gangs on the street. And they didn't, they, when we don't have those people there to organize for us, then we have the development of more criminal elements. So, yeah. Uh, th that question of uh, mass incarceration and political prisoners is closely tied to this question of repair and reparations. As I mentioned earlier, uh, if we limit it to just talking about slavery, we don't miss, we miss or we'll have um, uh, a payment for something, but the problem still exists, right? Um when we look at uh, international law and reparations, one of the things, one of the key features of reparations is the implementation of policies to prevent further damage from occurring. 
And if we allow mass incarceration to continue, the damage is still occurring. If we allow uh, political prisoners to still be incarcerated, the damage not again, not just against their particular families, but against our community as a whole, is still allowed to continue. Uh, is, 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 am I being clear? Yeah, definitely. And I was also thinking when you discussed about how um, other folks from the diaspora and about how they you know, they're not stopped and asked if, you know, they're descended of enslaved Africans here in this country before facing white supremacy. And there's always two incidents I always think of immediately, even when having this conversation. And that's, uh, you know, Amadou Diallo, African from Guinea, who was shot and killed just, you know, not because of any crime that he had committed, but of course, because of uh, the machinations of the police. Also, there was Abner Louima, a, a Haitian man uh, who was uh, brutalized and and sodomized uh, by the New York police. And the fact of him being Haitian, the fact that his ancestors were enslaved in another country did not protect him from that racist police terror. So I definitely get uh, what you're getting at there. And also, I appreciate you raising the issue of uh, Dr. Matulu Shakur, a, a political prisoner. And, you know, for a long time, groups like the Malcolm X grassroots movements and other uh, organizations have been fighting for his freedom, particularly now as he has, is in failing health, as a lot of our political prisoners are because they've been in these prisons for uh, decades. And so, you know, we know that the, the level of health care in these institutions are not adequate to, to say the very least, if not sort of downright Putative, And I feel like even in this year, we've seen some progress on the political prisoner front. We've seen the release of Sundiata Akoli, you know what I mean, you know, joining the ranks of uh, those who have been able to uh, be released. So I was hoping you could say more about uh, Dr. Shakur, uh, Dr. Umoja, and why it's so important that we not only fight for him, but, you know, fight to free them all, to free all of our political prisoners and prisoners of war. Free them all is, is the call, and I think that uh, just for your audience who might not be aware who Dr. Shakur is, uh, he's popularly known as the stepfather of, of Tupac Shakur, but that's just limited significance uh, to our people and our people's struggle. Dr. Uh, Tulu Shakur was uh, born in 1950. He became an activist when he was 16 years old, even prior to that. As a young person, he used to go uh, hear Malcolm X speak when Malcolm X was at mosque uh, number seven in Harlem. And he was influenced, and that kind of set the groundwork for him. When he was 16, he became involved in a group called Revolutionary Action Movement. <laughs> Excuse me. And he would later join the, the provisional government of the Republic of New Africa that demanded uh, reparations in five states for the establishing black nation for black people. Uh, when he was uh, 19, doing security for that organization, their meeting was raided uh, by the Detroit police. They raided the place, shot, shot it up, and Matulu would put some of the elders on the ground and he would put his body over there. And he, I think he learned at that time, uh, it really convinced him that black people needed a self-defense component to our movement. One of the things he became involved, recognizing when we talked about COINTELPRO before, is he and his uh, later, who would become his wife, Afani Shakur, the mother of Tupac, 
would uh, establish uh, the National Task Force for Cointel Pro Litigation and Research, where they would uh, research uh, what the FBI was doing to black communities. The research they did ultimately led to the uh, freedom of Elmer Geronimo Pratt or uh, Geronimo Gijaga, um, a black panther who was incarcerated. He was also become involved in self-defense in black communities like Wilmington and uh, Cairo, Illinois, that were under siege by white, uh, white supremacist-type armies. Uh, but he would ultimately, and I should mention, I said he was a doctor, he was also became a doctor of acupuncture in a community takeover of a hospital in uh, the Bronx, New York, when that is during that time, he began to use acupuncture to heal people from heroin addiction. Uh, he would ultimately uh, be targeted by COINTELPRO. He had been targeted since he was a young man. And um, he would be go underground, and he was charged with being a part of a racketeering conspiracy, uh, the RICO Act, saying that he was a part of Act. Uh, like liberating Sister Simon Shakur from the penitentiary. They said that he was a uh, part of other people, uh, uh, a group of people who were taking money from armored trucks or whatever, and they were also um, su supporting movements on the African continent. We talked about Pan-Africanisms early, earlier, places like in Zimbabwe, but he was also supporting programs in the black community across the United States. Uh, he was ultimately uh, charged, uh, convicted, given a 60-year sentence with the time that he had earned, uh, according to the federal guidelines. He should have been released in 2016, but they decided to continue his sentence, claiming that correspondence he had um, either on the phone or, or, or else was a threat, a threat to— uh, the community. Let me give you one example. He called a program uh, at a college, and he was speaking about the need for truth and reconciliation. And they said that he um, was inciting a riot because he was talking about truth and reconciliation. They not only put him in solitary for a significant period of time, but then they also um, uh, used that to buy to not allow him parole, saying he was a threat to the community. Uh, he continues now. He has, as you mentioned, his health is failing. He's suffering from cancer, given months to live. Uh, but they said that he's a threat to the community, so they won't allow him to have a compassionate release. And again, this kind of demonstrates the continued um, low-intensity war, if you call that low-intensity, against you know black freedom fighters in the United States. Definitely. We're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. 
My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I am here. Jackie Lukeman is here. Dr. Akineli Umoja is here. And Dr. Umoja, I was wondering if you could sort of uh, break down and explain sort of the political substance and the ideology of, you know, what we could perhaps call the new African independence movement, uh, this revolutionary nationalist trend of uh, uh, the movement, which at least to me, and certainly you can correct me if if you don't think this is the case, it seems to me that it's uh, sort of separate and, and in some ways distinct from you know what what's been described as a, a a cultural nationalist sort of uh bend, and what I'm speaking to specifically in this revolutionary nationalist thinking is that there was clarity around the uh, contradictions of capitalism and imperialism and settler colonialism and even solidarity with uh, other oppressed groups. You know whether it's the indigenous people of this country or the Palestinians or what have you. I mean. That kind of, I mean, this truly kind of revolutionary politic, right, seemed like it was uh, really what undergirded so much uh, of that movement. And I feel like those politics and the organizations that sprung out of them are are pretty understudied when we talk about the black freedom struggle in the uh, U.S., uh, similar to how uh, Queen Mother Moore herself, who we started off the hour talking about, remains sort of largely understudied in uh, uh, this in this way. And so what can you tell us about those politics and just the ideology that that drove them and this work? Because I feel like it's as important as it is, you know, unique in our history. And that's a good question. I'm, I will be discussing that this semester. I'm looking at my syllabus. <laughs> <laughs> but when you talk about what we call revolutionary nationalism, um, I actually don't counter revolutionary and cultural nationalism. I, I kind of think those are false dichotomies. Mm, okay. It, um, for instance, you take somebody like Matulu Shakur. He was very much a person who was cultural, right, and revolutionary. I think to make that type of dichotomy is a false one. I think, um, you know, but anyway, to me, revolutionary nationalism goes back to the first African people who were enslaved and brought to this country. Uh, We think about the uh, first, and we usually don't talk about this Black History Month. But in 1526, the Spanish brought some black people here as captives to South Carolina and Georgia. And within months, they aligned themselves with the indigenous folks. They aligned and and disrupted the Spanish and ran them away from from Georgia and South Carolina. Um, To me, that's revolutionary nationalism. It was a sense of resistance, as you mentioned. They were willing to make allies with other folks. And uh, by nature of that they're fighting against their enslavement, it is anti-capitalist, right? It's anti-exploitation. So those politics are right there. And so when we think about people in our history, as you mentioned, Queen Mother Moore, Malcolm X, um, they weren't just nationalists because they wanted self-determination, but they also wanted to establish a society where exploitation is not there. Right. If you look at, and I mentioned when Matulu Shakur 
1968, they formed a group, the Provisional Government of the Republic of New Africa, and uh, they wanted to get independence and self-determination for black people. Uh, they didn't want uh, they, their identity for black folks in the United States, those of us who were African descendants, descendants of enslaved captive Africans, they said, and Queen Mother Moore actually came up with this name. She said they should call themselves New Africans. And the perspective they also had is they wanted a society that was free of exploitation. And I think the spirit of that was they wanted a society free of capitalist exploitation, uh, a society uh, that would allow for the, the, the end of oppression to, to our sisters and anybody else in our society. Everybody would be free. And so when we think of revolutionary nationalism, of course, the Black Panther Party fits in that framework also, right? Groups like the League of Revolutionary Black Workers fit in that framework. Uh, they, they, they want self-determination for us as for people, but they don't want to uh, uh, create a new group of exploiters for us, right? <laughs> and so uh, we think of it from that perspective, you know, that it's a, it's a look a, we're looking to achieve a different type of society. As uh, the great thinker Franz Fanon once said, if we want to create a society uh, based upon exploitation, we might as let, well let the people who run it continue to run it, right? <laughs> uh, we, we want a, a different type of society, right? Um, and, you know, that should even in, in, in extend to how we deal with the environment, right? Uh, we want to have a society where the the, the uh, plight of the planet for our children, our grandchildren, is not in peril. That it has the you know a chance to thrive and grow and develop, but not we threaten the survival of the planet. That's, and so <clears throat> that's the spirit of a person like again, like you mentioned, the Queen Mother Moore. But it even goes before. Are contemporary, when I say contemporary, to your young audience, they might think they're contemporary, but I actually remember Queen Mother more. But, you know, but even going back to the first Africans uh, who were enslaved in this country, um, I love uh, the work of uh, someone like Cedric Robinson, who talked about this black radical tradition, and he centers it in the black people who resisted their, their captives, right? The uh, so-called maroon or what we like to call the Quilombo tradition. Um, and so that um, that's the heart of what we call revolutionary nationalism. And Dr. Umoja, I wonder how you see the importance of connecting that legacy of revolutionary nationalism for Africans in this part of the uh, the diaspora to the kind of revolutionary nationalism we see that I think is expressed in countries that are uh, uh, opposing and, and continuing to stand up against U.S. imperialism uh, right now, countries like Venezuela and Cuba uh, and, and places like that, particularly since, you know, Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro uh, uh, celebrated and the people of Venezuela celebrated Hugo Chavez's uh, legacy since his birthday. Chavez's birthday was yesterday. And, you know, Chavez was one and Maduro is another who made like publicly laid claim to their African and indigenous heritage, right? And 
and made clear that they are from, you know, African, indigenous and oppressed people and stood up against the very same capitalist imperialist forces that we're fighting in this country. So, I mean, how do you see the importance of connecting those uh, revolutionary nationalist struggles, the ones that we're engaged in in this part of the diaspora and recognizing that those struggles are going on elsewhere, too? Yeah, and I would even include uh, the legacy of the Haitian Revolution. Right. Uh, you know, um, and of course, which has been abandoned by the current uh, exploiters and rulers of Haiti, who are in league with the, you know, same people who oppose uh, the, the revolution in Cuba and in Venezuela. But now I, I agree with you 100%. In fact, I had the opportunity one time to hear Maduro speak, and he talked about the context of what they call the Bolivarian Revolution in Venezuela as a revolutionary national struggle. And so I see the same thing with Fidel Castro and the, and the Cuban Revolution. I think it's incumbent upon, and I, I would hope that younger generations of activists really globalize and see the importance of our struggle being connected. And that's what... Uh, Queen Mother Moore would ask them, or Malcolm X would ask them to do, or Robert or Mabel Williams would ask them to do, is to look globally, look for friends and allies, look and see what we can learn from our friends across the globe and see what connections we could do in concert um, with our people internationally. I know uh, Malcolm X talked about our blood brothers and sisters again in the Western Hemisphere, and he was including Haiti. Colombia, Venezuela, you know, Cuba, uh, as some of those places where our blood brothers and sisters exist that we need to connect with and build a, a base of unity and collaboration and support. Just the thought that someone like um, Asada Shakur has received asylum in Cuba and other people in the past, like a Huey Newton or Robert Williams, and other people had asylum in Cuba uh, from, you know, support. As, as Asada described, that she was a, a part of a, a Cimarron tradition, and that's what they talk about, uh, the black communities in um, Latin and South and Central America and Caribbean talk about their part of this, again, uh, 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 the resistance community of runaways. Uh, again, I call it the Quilombo tradition because that was the term uh, that they gave in uh, West Central Africa for these types of communities. And that's where that uh, history began. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, Jackie, well, first, I, don't know, I, I almost laughed, you know, uh, you know, when, when uh, Dr. Emoja talked about, you know, Asada Shakur taking asylum, you know, in Cuba only because you have some people in movement today that will tell you that Cuba's anti-black. <clears throat> Excuse me, but uh, I even got choked up thinking about that. But yeah, yeah, we ain't going to get deep off into that. But yeah, yeah, it's so important that we, we have these conversations because, you know, on the show, we're very critical of this uh, liberal identitarian kind of politic that is really the main trend, I would say, in, in politics here in the U.S. And so it's so important then to have these conversations that really fleshes out the history 
uh, of uh, uh, black struggle, even though we, you know, we, we were, you know, kind of focused on individuals in a sense. But the lives of those individuals encompassed so much of this struggle with all of its international implications and its ideological substance. Because I think there's a real sort of uh, uh, issue with that. I actually think there's a tendency to um, sort of uh, repel or to, you know, be against ideological labels or things like that. It's like this, uh, I don't know, almost like a buffet or smorgasbord where people can just kind of pick and choose a la carte the aspects of uh, their ideology and politics. And if those things happen to come into conflict, well, then there's no sort of real uh, resolution to that. They just sort of (laughs) act and think in a contradictory way. But this kind of study and this kind of understanding of uh, our history and uh, the real thrust of our political struggle, particularly the revolutionary aspects of it, are so important, particularly now where material conditions for Africans in the U.S., for poor working and oppressed people in this country and indeed around the world are all getting worse as the contradictions of capitalism and imperialism are intensifying seemingly moment by moment and day by day. So what then is the solution? We have to do what Matulu Shakur has done. We have to do what Queen Mother Moore did in terms of organizing, of joining organizations and really putting forth that work and making these kinds of uh, 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 sacrifices to uh, be able to achieve this change that we know we need so bad. I think this kind of education, this kind of political education, has to be part and parcel of developing this uh, people's movement that we know is necessary in order not only to make a a policy difference, but to actually achieve systemic overturn. But we're going to leave it there for today and this week. Can run by any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. One thing, Dr. Akineli Umoja, so much for joining us today. We'll be back next week with an all-new slate of episodes. As always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By any means necessary.